0: Hello, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. If I spoke of the ice blue line of intensity being a place most never see, a hard won place of mystery, touch it, but you can't hold it, you might not know what I was talking about, or think that I had possibly gone quite dramatic. But if I then told you, ah, this is a story of a Steeltown girl on a Saturday night.
1: Just a steel-
0: You would know that she was a maniac. The song by Michael Sambello that was at number one in 1983 exactly 40 years ago today. Well, that 1983 song will be part of my conversation that I am going to play that I had with Chris Malamphy, Chris came by and will continue to do so. We pick a year, we go, we tick down the number one songs of the year. And the reason I was thinking about 1983 and the 40th anniversary is I had just done a spiel this week about air travel and how safe it has become, even though there is some concern about that it might not be permanently perfectly safe. And 1983 was a couple years after Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers. In the year 1983, there were four commercial airline crashes or disasters that took lives we haven't had one for 14 years so in 1983 we had four of them the worst being Air Canada flight 797 which essentially blew up out of Hebron Kentucky. so it was a terrible time in 1983 for air disaster in terms of cancer survival rates which I've referenced in the spiel I'm going to play if you are a man, things were a bit better for women. But if you were a man and had cancer, and it depends on which type of cancer, but just in general, your doctor, your oncologist might show you the survival odds in five years, and you were not likely to survive across all forms of cancer. It was below 50% five-year survival rate for men, and now it is 70%, above 70%. Just one way in which things have gotten better since 1983. Perhaps they've gotten worse, though, when you consider the number one songs of that year, as we will up next in this interview with Chris Melanchthon. 1983 was a year of the new and the familiar, and things that were new that would become familiar. Wow, it seems profound. Also, probably describes every year. Anyway, in 1983, the space shuttle Challenger took its first flight. The DeLorean stopped production. But a couple things started that are around us every day. Like, the first Target store opened, and the movie A Christmas Story debuted. It's there, probably right now, on TBS. But we're talking about the music of 1983, and we're doing so with Chris Malamphy. Every so often, Chris will come by. We'll take a year. We'll talk about all the Billboard number one singles of that year. Chris hosts Hit Parade, great podcast from Slate, and writes the "Why of This Song Number One" column, also for Slate. Chris, thanks for coming by again. Anytime, Mike. Good to be here. All right, counting down the hits, as Casey used to say. Right. Whoa, whoa, let's go! Or here we go. Man Eater, Hall and Oates starts the year at number one. Hall of Notes, are they at their songwriting pop icon
2: height? they around are, 1983? They absolutely are. They're at their imperial peak. Uh, this is a holdover from late 1982. It's the leadoff single from their H2O album, which is their best-selling and best-charting album. It is one of many hits over the years that has borrowed, or you might say stolen, the bass line from the classic Motown uh, Supreme single, You Can't Hurry Love. That baseline recurs in A Town Called Malice by The Jam, uh, Valerie, that uh, remake of the Zuton song with uh, Mark Ronson and... Amy Winehouse, that appeared in the aughts. It's an unstoppable bass line, and probably nobody made more out of that bass line or had a bigger hit with that bass line, that James Jamerson Motown bass line, than Daryl Hall and John Oates did with Maneater at the final weeks of 1982 and early weeks of 1983. The next big song,
0: I don't know if the kids these days realize how big Men at Work were. They were huge. Men at
2: Work were huge.
0: Colin Hay was huge. And uh, the phrase Vegemite sandwich was injected into our consciousness with the song Down Under.
2: Yes, Down Under, their second number one hit. People forget that they were coming off of an earlier number one hit from late 82, Who Can It Be Now? And by this point, the business-as-usual album was in the middle of a 15-week, 15 15-week 15 run at number one on the album chart. Men at Work were legitimately huge at the turn of
0: 1983. She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said, do you come
1: from a land down under
2: Down Under is filled with fun little phrases. Uh, you know, everything from a fried-out combi, which, by the way, is a VW bus, or uh, on a hippie trail, head full of zombies. Zombie is a form of Australian weed. You know, that makes sense. Now the, I'm now Obviously, the, 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 ve- yeah. the Vegemite sandwich, um... Uh, Men chunder. Chunder is basically just a word for puke. So, yeah, before, you know, genius lyric sites existed and uh, allowed you to translate all of these fun little phrases, Down Under was there uh, confounding pop listeners in early 1983. So since we're
0: globetrotting, apparently, or at least the pop charts were in between uh Down Unders. I think they had four weeks in number one, but it was broken up by Africa, by Toto. What a great song. What crazy lyrics.
2: The wild dogs cry out in the night As they grow restless Longing for some solitary company I know that I must do what's right as Sure as Kilimanjaro Rises like a Olympus Above the surrogate
0: Well, tell me how uh, tell me who Toto were were was
2: and uh, how this why this song was number 1. This song was only number 1 for 1 week. However, it arguably is the song that casts the longest shadow. 36 years later. Mm, Um, it is from Toto's Grammy winning album of the year, Toto four. It is Toto's only number one hit. It was not the first single released from Toto four. That would be Rosanna, which was a number two hit in the summer of 1982. And to this day, when the members of Toto who still tour, by the way, are interviewed, they often say that if you had told them that the song that would have the longest legacy (laughs) of theirs would be this strange song that their keyboardist, David page brought to them, uh, that had these bizarre lyrics about, you know, Mount Olympus and the Serengeti, they would have said you were crazy. And yet it is kind of the ultimate Gen Z, Generation Z 80s song. It is the song that my stepchildren can recite every word of and sing along with. It is the song that a young fan implored the band Weezer to please cover in a tweet in 2018 and Rivers Cuomo complied and it became Weezer's biggest alternative rock hit in more than a decade. And, you know, it's, Become the standard for Toto, who were a band whose fingerprints are actually all over the top of the charts in 1983. They played on Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh-huh. They were kind of Quincy Jones's go-to backing band, even when they weren't credited. Um, and they, they were
0: known s- as great session musicians. That who was had how Toto started. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly.
2: Toto was sort of a band that formed out of a bunch of session musicians on the West Coast who were just being called in to sessions left, right, and center, and they were all white hot players. Uh, you know, Jeff Porcaro, one of the best drummers. Studio drummers of his generation, for example.
0: Thriller comes out in 1983.
2: Uh, thriller comes out in late 82. Late
0: 82. The video for Thriller comes... The song Thriller comes out in 83.
2: Late 83. That's yeah. actually the final single.
0: Yeah. But Billy Jean is on the charts for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then Come On Eileen takes it off for a week, and then Beat It is on the chart for weeks and weeks and weeks.
2: Right. Well, we have to talk about Michael Jackson if we're going to talk about 1983, because he dominated the year. Uh, Thriller was number one for literally months out of the year. Uh, I believe it's 37 weeks in total, spread across 83 and 84. Billie Jean, which spends seven weeks at number one, is not actually the first single from Thriller. I don't know if you remember, Mike, what the first single from Thriller was. The Girl Is Mine? The Girl Is Mine, the duet with Paul McCartney, because Michael Jackson, in the worst way, wanted to cross over with white and black audiences. And even though I think everybody agrees The Girl Is Mine is not only the weakest single, but the weakest track, period, on Thriller, he leads off the entire campaign for Thriller in the fall of 82 with The Girl Is Mine. And then he releases Billie Jean, which is just an inevitable hit. It borrows its baseline from the classic Hall & Oates hit. Speaking of Hall & Oates again... uh, I can't go for that. No can do. Michael Jackson privately admitted to Daryl Hall. Yeah. I kind of stole your baseline. Uh, but my God, is not
0: worth like $30 million to $80 million that admission. Uh, yeah, probably, <laughs>
2: probably. Uh, but you know, uh, what Michael does with it is make an utterly immortal single that is basically about uh, paternity disputes that Michael had been the subject of uh, throughout he and his brother's career.
0: Well, we skipped over it, but I don't want to those those overall uh, Irishmen of Dexie's Midnight Runners and come on Eileen. <laughs> I mean, talk about one-hit wonder. I, I have Total no one hit concept of any other Dexys Midnight Runners song.
2: Well, let me be fair to Dexys Midnight Runners and their lead singer-slash-mastermind-slash-only-core-member Kevin Rowland. Mm-hmm. They were not a one-hit wonder band in England. Um, in America... Dexy's Midnight Runners were absolutely a one-hit wonder. If you are a strict definitionalist on the term one-hit wonder, they did make the lower rungs of the Hot 100 one more time with a follow-up single, but it, it peaked in the 80s. It barely counts. They never saw the inside of the top 40 again. And yet, kind of like Africa by Toto, Come On Eileen is probably playing on an oldies radio station right now. It is is kind of an enduring hit. Uh, Flashdance was a huge movie in 83,
0: and the title track by Irene Cara went to number one.
2: It won an Oscar for uh, Giorgio Moroder, who produced and co-wrote the song with Irene Cara, uh, and Keith Forsey, who, by the way, is kind of a quiet journeyman in the 80s. If that name doesn't ring any bells, he wrote everything from The Heat Is On, from the Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack for Glenn Fry to Don't You Forget About Me, which was a number one hit in 85 for Simple Minds. So Keith Forsey was this kind of zelig figure who co-wrote a lot of big, big hits. Uh, but, you know, it has been said for decades that Flashdance, what a feeling, given Giorgio Moroder's history with Donna Summer could easily have been a Donna Summer hit. But let's give Irene Carr right. her props. She was, frankly, a bigger artist in 1983 for a very brief moment. And uh, famously, they never say the the word flash dance in the song, flash dance, dot, 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 what a feeling. But they had to get the title of the movie into the title of the song. The Eurythmics made number
0: one with uh, Sweet Dreams are made of this. We've got a cello in a field. We've got a cow eye. We've got Annie Lennox. We've got Dave Stewart.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Great song. Great song.
1: Sweet dreams are made of this Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you.
0: Uh, your rhythmics were synthy and
2: daring and very, I think interesting, influential band, two great musicians together. I mean, you've got Annie Lennox, who's just an amazing vocalist. You've got Dave Stewart, who goes on to produce any number of, you know, smash albums from the likes of everybody from Tom Petty to Mick Jagger. So they're two consummate musicians to begin with, but they were perceived as really quirky and left field and MTV-esque in 1983. Yeah, Uh, Annie was uh, at the height of her androgyny at this point. You know, she's got this uh, buzz cut that's, uh, you know, dyed red and she's got this very severe look and paired with this amazing, soulful voice that she's got. This record has been sampled in uh, hip hop records. It's been, you know, covered over the years. Um, And it's, again, another record from 83 that is probably playing on an oldie station as I speak. Yeah, well, who am I to disagree? A song that remained at number one
0: for weeks and weeks and weeks, I think it probably, well, let's check this. I think this song was at number one for longer than even Billie Jean was Every Breath You Take by The Police.
2: Well, and it's the number one record of 1983, which is remarkable in the year that Michael Jackson otherwise dominates. You you have to realize that, you know, Sting was at the height of his powers as a rock star, as a songwriter... Um, it's really a, quite a simple song, at least musically. Uh, I once uh, heard a, a musicologist tell me that it's basically an inversion of old 50s songs like Teenager in Love. You can you can kind of play, you know, 50s lyrics to that very simple b- bass line that the song is based around. But the simplicity of Every Breath You Take is part of what makes it work. And, of course, that lyric, which... Let's say it again. Sting has said this in multiple interviews. It is not a romantic lyric. It is a song about paranoia and surveillance. Uh, you know, every breath you take, I'll be watching you. I would argue that what makes the song great, the, the song would kind of be uh, ambient if it weren't for the fact that it uh, has that wonderful bridge in the middle, of the since you've gone, I've been lost without a trace. Uh, which, by the way, was the part of the song that was not sampled 14 years later on Puff Daddy's "I'll Be Missing You." Right. Uh, but it's it's in my opinion the best part of the song. Uh, and also, by the way,
0: that sample was just I mean I guess we talked about this in, in the '97 show, but yeah, yeah, it was not it was just not a rip off. It was just a rip off. It was <laughs> and then yelling Biggie, we miss you on. Top. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
2: And it must also be said that "Every Breath You Take" had an iconic black and white music video. I believe it was directed by uh, Kevin Godley and Lal Cream uh, who were both video directors and musicians themselves. It's a stunning video uh, it, Half in Shadow frankly if you took the you know the Beatles album with the Beatles where their faces are Half in Shadow and turned that into a music video and put in Stuart Copeland Andy Summers and Sting you would have the Every Breath You Take video and it was played round the clock on MTV in 1983
0: Here's the last song we haven't talked about a mainstay of uh, all sorts of genres a mainstay you go to uh, a Sweet I 16 and you'll hear it I would call it a karaoke mainstay Then look in your eyes Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Very much the Jim Steinman, Bad Out of Hell uh, feeling. It's almost as if he, you know, Jim Steinman wrote those two great albums and then had some leftover material in Total Eclipse of the Heart. And then Celine Dion took became his muse. So in between Meatloaf and Celine Dion, I guess... Bonnie Tyler was Jim Steinman's muse.
2: At least for this song. And uh, this is probably the biggest hit. Jim Steinman, famed for writing Bad Out of Hell for uh, Meatloaf, uh, the man of melodrama, uh, the man who wrote uh, Making Love Out of Nothing at All for Air Supply. That's right. If you've ever wondered why Making Love Out of Nothing at All and most of Meatloaf's hits and this Bonnie Tyler record yeah. all
0: kind of sound the same. And it's all coming back to me now. It's all of a piece.
2: If you've, if you've yeah. ever wondered why these records all sound the same, it's because they are written by... And produced by the melodrama king himself, Jim Steinman, uh, who never met a crescendo he didn't love. And uh, so... This is probably the biggest Jim Steinman hit. Uh, It spends a month at number one. Uh, Bonnie Tyler is a Welsh singer with this incredibly raspy voice. Some have called her the female Rod Stewart. This song just utterly reinvents her career. Right after this, she scores a a top 10 hit with another Jim Steinman song called Holding Out for a Hero from the Footloose soundtrack. Right. Uh, And so this kind of epic melodrama kind of becomes her bag for a couple of years and and makes her a hit maker.
0: Now, Chris, do you think 1983 was a bona fide great year for pop singles or was it that you and I were 12 (laughs) when these when the idea of the number one single is very much impressed upon a person
2: all right I'm going to say a simple yes to all of your questions we were 12 so yes we have very fond memories of this period however we're looking at several songs here that have very seriously endured on the radio. Uh, like I said, how many times did I say this episode? You're probably going to hear that on the radio, and yeah. you know, in your drugstore, in your oldies radio station. From every breath you take to Africa by Toto, to Sweet Dreams are Made of This, to Total Eclipse of the Heart, to Islands in the Stream, to even Down Under, which I still hear on oldies radio. Yeah, to Maneater by Hall and Oates. Right. These are totemic. 80s pop records and also let's also think about where the music business was in 1983 the post disco backlash that happens in 80 81 82 the music industry takes a bad hit coming out of that period Uh, and those are fallow periods both for hit making and for songs that endure I mean we can name records from 81 and 82 that are still on the radio like say Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mm -hmm. but there are way more iconic centrist I'll say it monocultural hits from 1983 When critics talk about the monoculture, the moment when we had fewer television channels and fewer radio stations and Top 40 radio was sort of enjoyed by a wide swath of listeners, they're pretty much talking about 1983 and 1984. And there's a reason why a lot of these songs, even the goofy ones, even the Total Eclipse of the Hearts, even the Africas are still on the radio to this day. Chris Malamfy is the host of the Hit Parade
0: podcast on Slate. That is the publication for which he writes, why is this song number one? Chris, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. I had a near miss with the New York Times airline near miss story. In case subscribers nearly missed the point, they had their lead reporter, Sidney Ember, on the Daily yesterday following up the print story of about a week ago. And they also ran an excerpt of the Q&A that Sydney and Daily host Michael Barbaro committed to. Here's some of what she said on the Daily.
1: And so, putting all of this together, these safety reports, these public databases, a picture started to emerge of a lot more close calls than almost anyone realizes are happening, occurring extremely frequently, really alarmingly frequently.
0: And so, she raised the alarm and did so frequently in print, on pod, and in print again. And good, I guess. If there's unsafe practices occurring, it is the duty of the news media to advocate for safety. If there is an underfunded agency, and there always is, I guess they need to let us know. By the way, every branch of the military says this every year. There is a constituency for that message. Almost every police department says this almost every year, and a certain type of person will worry about that. Yes, the police is not funded enough. The more jet-setting New York Times reader probably will not care that much about the police department funding story, but they will care about safety in the air. But sure, the statistics do point to a danger to the citizenry, as there always is a danger to the citizenry. So then I say the newspaper should cover the story, by all means. Well, not by all means. Because as I said the other day, the actual story is actually a story of the greatest period of safety in aviation history. And some worry it might be less safe, mainly because it couldn't be any more safe with zero major commercial airline crashes over the last 14 years? 14 years! For all my life, until I turned around 40, every few months there was a pretty big air disaster, with tens, maybe dozens dead. Every few years, a giant tragedy would occur with over 100 dead. Now, no dead. But worry about near misses and calling that situation a crisis. Wait, I just want to pause on that. That means
2: more than once a day, 46 times in a single month.
1: That's right. On average, it seemed like they were happening more than once a day. And then when we looked at the NASA database for the most recent 12-month period for which data is available, what we saw was roughly 300 documented reports of close calls on the ground and in the air.
0: It is a crisis of non-occurrence. One generation's crisis is another's utopia, a dream. These air disasters dominated the news year in and year out. I looked up one of the almanacs, Info Please, remember that one? These were their top domestic stories from 1986. Two about the presidential election, five were Clinton domestic initiatives, you'll hear one of them here, and then FBI arrests suspected Unabomber, April 3rd, Clinton signs line item veto, President Block's ban on late-term abortions, Value Jet crashes in Everglades, killing 110 aboard May 11th, 747 airliner crashes in Atlantic off Long Island, all 230 aboard, perish. These events occupied the same terrorizing mental landscape as would terrorism in just a few years' time, as do school shootings now. And then we solved the problem. And then after we solved the problem, we worried on the front page how the problem might not be permanently perfectly solved. It's not really even so much a media criticism. I keep talking about the daily in the front page. It's really a human nature note. We do progress very badly. We don't recognize it and we worry about threats a lot more than we appreciate accomplishments. I mean, what is the biggest story about America's response to COVID? I don't know, something like fighting over masks, the slow rollout, 1.1 million deaths, right? Well, how about the fact that we invented a miracle drug for a disease that at any other time in human history would have killed millions more than it did? The real story is a miraculous triumph. No, wait, not a miracle. It's human ingenuity. As great an accomplishment as could be fathomed, except we don't even spend time to fathom it. I don't expect COVID to have positive associations, but it is fair to look at it through a much more positive lens. We are so threatened So stressed, so bummed out, so much of the time. New York Magazine's podcast columnist linked to the near-miss story with the note, well, there goes six years of flight anxiety therapy. (sighs) I hope not. The skies are still safe, Nick. We're inundated with doom. We're inundated with real doom and supposed doom and potential doom and concocted doom, and we're not good as a species at telling it apart. If so, our ancestors years ago would have been really worried about the lion and gotten eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Even this system, this, as I've demonstrated, very effective, not foolproof, but working perfectly well for a, a decade and a half, even this system of safety is described in really uninspiring terms
1: technology on runways and technology on the planes themselves that alert controllers and pilots to potential collisions. And in aviation circles, this safety system is known as the Swiss cheese model.
0: The patchy metaphor there is meant to convey redundancy, that if the Swiss cheese slices are stacked on top of each other, then it won't have holes. But in sports, a Swiss cheese defense is one you could slice right through. In just about every metaphor, Swiss cheese does not connote safety. There are phrases for redundancy and a commitment to safety, phrases like a belt and suspenders method. Or since this method is a mechanical system plus air traffic control, plus pilots, plus modern planes, It should be considered a belt and another form of suspenders and sock garters. All the stuff, all at once. It's pretty safe. How safe? No crashes. How unsafe? That's the crisis of could-be crashes. It's very hard for me to come off in a commentary like this, which is really the second commentary like this, without seeming blasé and unconcerned and overly flippant about lives in the balance. I know I risk leaving that impression. Instead, I would like for my words to be read more optimistically. Let's brightside the accomplishment, like we should brightside the overall decline in political assassinations, the decline in auto thefts, the decline in violent crime, the decline in huge decline in auto deaths by vehicle mile traveled, the giant strides we've made in cancer survival rates. There is so, so much. It's not perfect, but it's clearly improving. I call this the Dutch cheese method meaning things are good, but they could be gouda. But if you would rather sidestep the sunny optimism approach, I did, you heard me, I did invoke the phrase near misses three times. It's the Beetlejuice rule, but it calls forth George Carlin.
2: Here's one they just made up, near miss. When two planes almost collide, they call it a near miss. It's a near hit. A collision is a near miss. Look, they nearly missed.
0: Now that right there, that is a human nature critique, but also a media critique in this instance. And that's it for The Saturday Show, which is produced by Corey Wara and senior produced by Joel Patterson. We'll talk to you Monday.